It is good to see you guys again this morning. And so uh, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 8. That's where we're going to be hanging out today. And uh, if you don't have your Bibles, no big deal. I'm going to be putting some of these passages up on the screen uh, for you to follow along with. But uh, I do want to keep going in, uh, in week two of a three-week series we started last week. Um, talking about our vision here as a church and what God has called us to become and to be here at Dallas Bible Church. Uh, and so if you missed out on last week, if this is the first time or first time in a long time, um, I referenced an article in a big study that came out back in 2008 that God really used to help shape the way that we think and talk about our vision here at Dallas Bible Church. The, the, the research came from a, a group of LifeWay researchers and uh, they were talking about the disproportionate rate of growth in America uh, combi- combined to the rates of evangelism and discipleship that are taking place in the church. So, for instance, back in, from 1990 to 2005, the United States grew by about 92 million people, right? That's an enormous amount of people. Uh, meanwhile, there was tens of thousands of churches that were shutting down their doors during that exact same time. So it's not so much that evangelism discipleship doesn't take place in the church anymore. It's just that it's not keeping up with the rate of growth that's taking place in America today. Uh, the article continued to talk about how from the time of about 2008 to 2015, they're expecting about 55,000 churches to close their doors. Uh, they're talking about a, a decline in total church attendance from about 17% of the total population to decline to about 14% of the total population. That's a decrease of about 10 million people uh, that will stop going to church uh, in a reg- somewhat of a regular basis during that time period. And so there are a lot of alarming things that came out of the study. Probably the one thing that stood out to me the most uh, was this. Of all the churches in the United States, there's only about 20% of them that are actually experiencing any kind of growth. Of those that are experiencing growth, there's only 1% of them that are doing it largely by sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ and reaching those uh, who are unchurched or dechurched uh, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it's not that growth is not necessarily happening in different pockets all around the world. It's just that it seems like the church has largely forgotten what God has called us to be. And so that's what I want to talk about today and, uh, and next week is, uh, as well. Um, the way that we talk about it around here is that by God's grace, we hope and pray that we would be a church that's included in that 1%. Right? The way specifically we talk about it is that we would be a multiplying, mission-minded family that's marked by God's grace that brings joy to our city and also glory unto God. And so that's what I want to press on a little bit more for us today. What does it look like that we would be a, a, a mission-minded family that's actually marked by God's grace that brings joy to the city and glory to God? So again, if you have your Bibles, Mark chapter 8, we're going to pick it up in verse 27. Um, While you're doing that, one of the major themes that we're going to be seeing in all of chapter 8 is this theme of of having right vision, of being able to see Jesus as he truly is. This is one of the things that's going to run from the very beginning to the very end of the chapter. Uh, Real quick, how many of you guys had a chance or you tried to drive on the highways a little bit this past weekend in the middle of all the storms and and all the craziness that's been taking place, the the, the frigid cold front that came through? Um, Right, right, it was uh, so cold. Um, yeah, I was out there on Friday. Friday I had to go take care, I was going to go meet my parents out in Fairfield, Texas, down on the track on 45 to go pick up my son Caleb. He'd spent the week out at Grandma's house, and I hit the storm in the, in the middle of the storm. I mean, it was sheets of rain, tons of thunder and lightning, the whole thing. There's a point in the time when I was driving down there, I actually had to pull, pull over on the side of the road just because I wasn't able to see very well. 
And so I pulled over on the side of the road, and it's not so much the fact that I was blind and couldn't see anything. Like, my problem was that I was only able to see about 10 feet in front of my face. Like, that's the only thing that I was able to, to see. And it's exactly what we're going to be seeing here in chapter 8. It's going to be this whole process of people being able to see only what's in front of their face and only be able to behold just a little bit of who Jesus actually is. Uh, the chapter picks up very familiar story, 4,000 uh, people miraculously fed by Jesus. Uh, the, what we, we've heard some of these miracle stories before, and it kind of picks up like this, but um, very similar scenario to what we saw just two chapters earlier. Jesus miraculously feeds 5,000 people, right? Uh, very similar situation. Jesus is preaching. The crowds are following him. They're loving what he's having to say. Uh, and, and they're there, and all of a sudden, he's done with his teaching, and they're kind of going, okay, I've got no more food. How are we going to feed all these people? And the disciples, they start freaking out, right? They start freaking out and kind of going, okay, uh, we're going to go hungry. Like, what do we do about this? Never mind the fact that literally two chapters earlier, Jesus performed this exact same miracle already. Like, he's already duplicated fish and bread to feed 5,000 people. Nevertheless, the disciples are only able to see the problems and the little bit of Jesus that's right there in front of their face instead of seeing the entirety of who he actually is is. A little bit later on, it's the Pharisees, they come to Jesus, and they're asking him for a sign. And they're saying, okay, Jesus, give us a sign. We need to know. We need, we need something that we can see, something that we can touch, we can hold on to, to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are who, who people think that you are. I, I need a sign to be able to see that you really are who you say that you are. And then a little bit after that, it's this famous story where uh, the people bring a, a blind man to Jesus. And Jesus goes about this miracle. It's one of the more gross uh, miracles in Scripture. You remember this? Jesus spits on the blind man's eyes, and then he, like, rubs it in. And, uh, and then he asks him, he says, do you see anything? And the guy opens up his eyes, and he says, I see a bunch of men, and it looks like they're walking around like trees, right? And so Jesus is like, okay, that's not right. Like, it's, it's fuzzy or something, right? And so he does it again, right? He does it two times in a row, and, and he spits, and he wipes it, and he, and he puts it on his eyes, and again, he laid his, his hands on his eyes, and, and it says that the man looked intently upon Jesus and was fully restored, and he began to see everything clearly. Church, that's what's going on here in chapter 8. This is the process of people being able to see who Jesus is and being able to follow well according to uh, everything that he came to do. And so that's where we're going to pick it up here in verse 27, and I want you to see what, what takes place here. Verse 27 says this, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, well, John the Baptist. Other people say Elijah. Others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, and he said, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, and he said, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them not to tell anyone about him yet. Now, real quick, what's, what's this about? You're going to see this all throughout the Gospels where, where there's these awakening experiences. People are going, okay, there are these aha moments. I see who you are, and, and the blind men are being able to see, and they, they know who Jesus is. And he says, okay, don't, don't go tell anybody about this. Like what's going on is this bottom line is just not the right time yet. Uh, bottom line, there's still work for Jesus to do, and he knows that as soon as the cat is out of the bag, people understand that he really is the promised Messiah, and that he's actually claiming to be the promised Messiah, um, that the religious elite, the Pharisees and people like that, they're going to rise up a crowd, uh, they're going to try to overthrow him and kill him at that time, and bottom line, this is not the right time yet. There's still work for Jesus to do. There's people that still need to be convinced, and so he says, I need you to wait and don't go tell people uh, who I am. Verse 31 says that he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said these things plainly. In other words, he's not speaking in parables or riddles or mysteries or anything like that. He's just bottom line. He's calling his shot 
before it even comes. He's saying, okay, I know things are good right now. There's 4,000, there's 5,000, there's all these people that are following me. They're listening to me. They're believing who I am, and things are really good right now. But there's coming a day when I'm actually going to have to suffer. I'm actually going to be rejected by the leaders and by many of you. Uh, there's coming a day. It's going to get very, very tough. I'm actually going to be crucified and killed. But, don't, but take heart, because three days later, I'm actually going to rise from the dead. And so essentially, he's calling his shot right there and speaking to them plainly about the things that are to come. Now, this is going to ruffle Peter because this is not what Peter expects. And so we read in the next verse, in verse 32, it says that Peter took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus. Okay, can you imagine like the audacity of, 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 of rebuking Jesus for a second? Like, who are you to sit there and be like, yeah, Jesus, you're wrong. Right? I, I, this is not a healthy thing. Caleb's in this phase. He's I feel like he's always been there. I don't know if he'll ever come out of it, but where he's like, he thinks that he knows better than I do, right? And he thinks that I'm wrong all the time. And so we're driving around town. He's like, Daddy, you missed your turn. He's like, Daddy, are, you, are we lost? Do you even know where you're going? You're going the wrong way, right? Like my five-year-old is like constantly telling me, Daddy, you're wrong. You're going the wrong direction. I'm like, buddy, you still think the Transformers are real. Like you don't know. I'm like, you don't know what truth is, right? Like, you have no understanding of what's really going on in the world. Like, you need to trust me a little bit. It's exactly what Peter's going, what, what Peter's doing right here. He says he has the audacity to rebuke Jesus because he gets who he is. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is the Messiah he's been waiting for for years and for years and for years. This is the conquering king that they came to expect in the Old Testament that was going to come and bring power to his people and that was going to set his people free and have victory everywhere he goes. He's not ready to accept a savior who's come to suffer and be rejected by the elders and come to die and have to be raised from the dead three days later. And so he pulls him aside and he starts to rebuke him and Jesus won't stand for it in verse 33. He says, turning and seeing his disciples, says that he rebuked Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind to the things of God, but on the things of man. I think I probably would have curled up in a ball and cried right there. It says in 34, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to him, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and forfeit the soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in the Father's glory with the holy angels. That's how the chapter ends. Like you can imagine when, when, when Jesus wraps up this whole, this whole speech, like you can imagine this, like, this massive hush that falls over the crowd. Like you can imagine it's kind of this gut punch sinking feeling because they never heard... They haven't heard this kind of teaching from Jesus before. It's intense kind of a teaching. And you can imagine like everybody's feeling the weight of conviction and there's this, there's this quiet hush coming over the crowd because it's not just Peter who's being rebuked here, right? Like Peter's a representative of the masses and even the millions that still live today that, 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 that say that they know who Jesus is. They see who he is, but they, they have no understanding of what it actually takes to, to follow him well. And so Jesus clarifies what that whole thing's going to look like and and he does it by saying one of the more uncomfortable things that you and I are ever going to hear, that following him is this all-in commitment that requires a total and complete denial of self, even unto death. I mean, it's exactly what he just said right there. If anyone's going to come after me, if, if you're going to be called a follower of Christ, if you're going to bear the name Christian upon your head, and, and that's the, the, the box that you're going to check right there, if you're going to actually follow after me, then you have to deny yourself and you need to take up your cross 
and you need to follow me. That's the call of followers of, for followers of Jesus Christ. So it's, it's not that you become self-abasing or even self-destructive, right? It's that, it's that everything about yourself, all of your thoughts and all of your, your feelings and all of your opinions and your, your values and your gifts and all of your goals, that they're going to be fully surrendered to the lordship of Jesus Christ in everything that you say and do. I love the way that Andy Stanley talks about this. He says it like this. He says, salvation is free. It costs you nothing. And he's absolutely right. Salvation is a free gift of God. It is by God's grace that you are saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God so that no man can boast. Salvation is free. It costs you nothing. But following Jesus will cost you something and maybe even everything. I'll never forget uh, a number of years ago back when um, we were at the early stages of seminary. I was in a small group of, of guys and we would meet weekly and and do Bible study and accountability, all different kinds of things. And, and there was a guy in our group who'd met a girl at school, and he was pretty pumped about her. He'd known her for two weeks now. He was already certain he was going to marry her. And, of course, he comes back, and she knew it. She wanted to marry him. He wanted to marry her. And, and he comes back, and he's telling us all about it. He's like, I've known her two weeks, and she's the greatest thing in the world, and I want to marry this girl. And, and he's like, yeah, but my parents aren't really into it, and her parents aren't really into it. They think we're rushing this thing. And, and, uh, and we're like, bro, let, let, let's talk. And so... Um, we, we pulled him aside one day, and we started talking. We're like, hey, we started talking to him about the wisdom of, of moving so quickly, right? And I'll never forget what he said. He said one of the funniest things. We still kind of laugh about it a little bit today. But he goes, he goes, I don't understand what the big deal about it is. Like, all you've got to do is die to yourself every single day, take up your cross, and follow Jesus, and everything will work itself out, right? And we were like, what? Like, kind of, kind of, but... Like, you understand, like, that's not exactly as easy as you're making it out to be, right? Church is not an easy thing that Jesus is calling us to right here. It's a, it's a total and complete denial of everything that is true that you think and value about, about yourself. He's calling us to a complete and total denial of ourselves. Let me ask you a question. Um, when someone contradicts you or accuses you of wrongdoing, what's the first thing that you do? You try to defend yourself, right? Like the first thing that you do when someone accuses you, you rise up and you fight to defend yourself. You get in an argument with somebody else, and, and whose truth are you most loyal to? Are you, are you most loyal to the other person's view of truth or, or your own? Like you're most loyal to your own self. Who's the one person in the world that you love or trust more than anyone else? It's yourself, right? That's why Jesus says the greatest commandment is this, that you should love the Lord your God, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself, because he knows that there is literally no one in the world that we naturally love or trust more than ourselves. Church, you go online even today, and there's going to be 93 million selfies posted today alone, right? Like we're obsessed with ourself, right? There's, that's, there's a thousand selfies posted to Instagram every 10 seconds, by the way. Uh, some of you put down your phones right now. Like 75% of all images shared on Snapchat are actually selfies. 19 out of 20 teens have taken selfies and posted them uh, socially online. I love this one. In 2015 alone, more people died from taking selfies uh, than from shark attacks. Like, did you know that it was that dangerous? Like, your narcissism actually kills you, right? I, 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 it's actually dangerous. We're literally killing ourselves uh, being so obsessed with ourselves. It's what sociologists today are calling individualism. And you know what they're saying about it? Like, they're saying that this is actually the God of America today. This is the thing that drives the way that we think, our values, everything that we do, the way that we interact with each other. This is the God of America today. Can I read you this little snippet and just see if, it, if it's accurate and defines a little bit of the, a few of the things that you're seeing happen, maybe even inside of you or, or around us? Here's what it says. Individualism is this belief that an individual's highest loyalty should be to him or herself. 
True happiness, from this perspective, is obtained by expression and realization of one's core identity, which includes a person's deepest desires, thoughts, and beliefs. Individualists strive for authenticity in their lives, and they often believe that societal norms should facilitate personal authenticity by celebrating the unique desires of the self. The central assumption of individualism is that what's good for you is different from what might be good for other people, which is moral relativism, and that the individual alone is best equipped to make decisions about his or her own life. Any sort of social or moral framework that does not account for and celebrate an individual's unique desires, inclinations, or aspirations is thus a form of social tyranny. The greatest good of of individualism is self-actualization, where one is able to fully express and act upon his or her desires and highest aspirations, whatever they may be. The assumption grounding this belief is that your desires and inclinations are built into you as a person and they constitute your personal identity. For social norms and moral traditions to tell you that your aspirations or desires ought not to be pursued is to tell you that you should not be yourself. Church, anybody hear anything like this around? You feel influenced by it at all? I'm telling you, church, like, like this is the thing. This is the value that drives everything that we're experiencing, thinking, and doing here in America today. And it's everywhere. And what Jesus is saying is that is that, that is not even close to the mindset of what it takes to follow me. I mean, Paul's going to say it like this in Philippians 3. He's going to say, if someone else thinks that they have reason to put confidence in self, I have so much more. In other words, if someone has, has confidence to, to, to think highly of themselves, look at my resume. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law. I'm a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, I'm faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Jesus Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss uh, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. In Galatians 2.20, he's going to say, I've been crucified with Jesus Christ. I've been crucified in Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. In this life that I'm now living in the flesh, I'm living by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered Delivered, him up, delivered himself up for me. In other words, church, like that is the mentality of the 1%. It's everything about who I am, everything that is true about myself, the way that I think, all my values, my priorities, my politics, my identity, my purpose, my money, my time, my energy. It's all fully surrendered to Jesus Christ in everything. I'll never forget, back in college, I had an accountability group of friends that we were really, really close with, and we would get together, again, same thing, and we would study God's word, and we'd hold each other accountable to all kinds of things that we mutually agreed upon that we wanted to pursue. And sometimes, like, these were, edif- these were really, really fun gatherings, and other times they were very invasive and they were tough, and I'll never forget one of these times we're sitting there and we're having incredible conversation, college guys getting honest and real and vulnerable with each other. Doesn't happen very much, right? And so this is one of these powerful times that we're getting really, really real with each other, and we're pushing each other on different things, and we're repenting of different things, and I'll never forget in the middle of one of these these gatherings, one of my friends gets up and and he just closes the Bible and he goes, "Um, fellas, I'm out of here. He's like, this is not what I signed up for. This isn't what I signed up for. And what Jesus is saying here is like, if if you bear the name Christian, if if you're actually a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, like who he really is and what he came to do, if you're actually following him, then it's exactly what you signed up for, right? Church, where do we get this idea that somehow in following Jesus Christ, it's never going to cost us anything? I, I love the way Tim Keller puts it. He says, if you don't have a God who can contradict you, you don't actually have God. Right? If you don't have a God who can contradict your life, you don't actually have God. Church, where in the world do we get this idea that somehow in following Jesus is never going to demand a cross? 
Like in Luke chapter 14, there's a bunch of people, and again, they're, they're following Jesus. And I don't know if he's just, having, if he's just wanting to thin out the crowd a little bit, but, but check out what he says, 14 verse 26. If anyone comes to me, doesn't hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Like what in the world is that about? I thought, I, I thought we were supposed to love all, right? I, and he says, if you, if you don't hate your father, your mother, your wife, your children, your brothers and sisters, even your own life, then, then you can't follow me? And of course, we, we know what he's saying here. Like he's not saying that you actually literally need to hate your family or anything like that, or the, the people that you love, because the reason we know that, he never actually hated his own family himself. Uh, he actually teaches the exact opposite later on and stuff, so it's not what he's saying, but he is using this hyperbole in order to say that if you want to follow me, you want to bear the mark of Christian, you want to actually follow the Lord Jesus Christ, then nobody else can get in the way of that, not even the people that you love most in this world. Church, like, that's a strong statement, right? This past Friday, I celebrated 16 years with Kat. Like, there's no one in the world that I would rather spend 16 years of my life with than her. Like, I'm absolutely that dad on Instagram that's way too obsessed with his kid, right? Like, I think he can do no wrong. I think he's always cute no matter what. And, like, I still remember, like, it was yesterday. The day we brought him home, and I'm carrying him like a football, like, afraid to fumble him. And I'm terrified that I'm going to do something to hurt him. Like, I love my family. And what he's just saying right here is that, that if there's ever this situation where my love and my loyalty and commitment to them gets in the way of faithfully following the Lord Jesus Christ and followers of Jesus, they still follow Jesus no matter what. You know what this could look like? It's in how you think about your family and the people that you love the most. We had some friends that came back a few years back. They were serving overseas in this area of the world that was incredibly hostile to the gospel. They were actually in a Taliban-controlled area. Um, and uh, when I talk about hostility to Christians, I mean, that was a real thing all the time. And they came back from the field, and we're sitting with them, and we're hearing some of their stories, and they're just talking about the difficulty this past year. And uh, she goes, you know what, it was, it, was, uh, it was a grueling year. There was a lot of tears this past year. We actually lost one of our team members. He was literally kidnapped by the Taliban, and he was one of the people that was killed by them on their team where they're serving. Like, we've had other threats. We've had other dangers and all these different kinds, and they're sharing story after story after story, and they're like, yeah, it was a really, really difficult year. And they're back in Dallas now because they were pregnant with their first child. And so they go, we come back to Dallas, and we're pregnant with our first kid, and he goes, you, you know what everybody's asking us? Are you going to stay? Everywhere they go, he, they go, we go back and visit our parents, and, and like our parents are begging us to stay. Don't go back over there. Why would you bring a child to that environment? Like our parents are begging us to stay. Every group that we go meet with, they're, they're begging us to stay. They don't understand why we want to go back. And I asked them, I was like, well, what are you going to do? And I'll never forget their response. They looked at me, they go, Aaron, like, what can we do? What can we do? Literally, like we love these people. God has called us to go to these people. God has called us to go to these people that no one else in the world will ever go. They will never talk to them. They'll never even touch them. There is no light except for the light that we are bringing, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like what else can we do? Church, parents, let me ask you this question. Like, like are you really okay if your kid decides to follow Jesus and in doing so, he actually takes them halfway around the world? And it's not exactly a safe place. Singles, are you, are, you, are you actually willing to be single-minded in your devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ, even if the people that you love most in this world don't understand what you're doing and the purity in which you're doing it? Like, husbands, let me ask you this. Like, are you actually okay if, if your wife decides to follow Jesus and in following Jesus, things begin to change at home? 
and you're not laughing or doing the same things that you used to do. And that she starts to actually flourish in this relationship and that it's not just all about you. Like, are you actually okay if, if you're, the loved ones in your life, they start to follow Jesus and in doing so, things begin to change. And what Jesus is saying is that if you actually want to follow me, then it's a total and complete denial of yourself and no one else can get in the way, not even the people that you love most in this world. Church, I mean, at some point in time, we've got to start believing that when I die to myself and I let God be God, that's when I'm truly going to live. I mean, at some point in time, we've got to have this shift where we start believing that when I die to myself and I let God be God in my life, that's when life will actually begin. Verse 35, he says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel, they're going to save it. In other words, church, there is a death that's required for life to be found. A few years back, I was talking with an acquaintance who had uh, walked away from the faith and the church altogether, and I was talking with him about it, and I was like saying, hey, bro, what, what's, what's really going on? And he goes, Aaron, you want to know what's really going on? And he goes, every time I walk into the church, it feels like death to me. Every time I walk into the church, it feels like death to me. All I can hear about is what a sinner I am and how much of my life really needs to change before God. And I sat there, and I just listened to him, and he was an acquaintance, sort of a friend of mine, and we had a little bit of rapport, and I listened to him for a little while, and I don't know if I was just feeling sassy that day or whatever. Maybe I read Luke 14 and was just following Jesus or something. But I finally kind of cut him off and was like, okay, I was like, that's it? That's why you've completely walked out on the faith and you've stopped going to the church because your pride can't take the fact that the, that the word of God calls you a sinner before holy God? That's it? Like that, that's the reason you can't take the fact that you're a sinner before a holy God church? If that's you, like you've got to hear me on this. That is every single one of us. It is every single one of us. It's not just that people group over here. It's not just that person that's struggling with this thing over here. It is every single one of us. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none who are righteous, not even one person. Even today, every single time I open up God's word, I'm reminded of the fact that he alone is holy and I'm not. I'm reminded of the fact that he alone is righteous and I am self-righteous. I am reminded of the fact that he alone is selfless and I am full of selfishness, that he is generous and that I am greedy and that he is humble and I'm full of pride. Church, every single time I'm confronted with the truths of God's word, either through his word or the preaching of another, I'm reminded of the fact that there is one true God and I'm not him, that he, there's one who is actually holy and I'm not actually him, but praise God that that's not where my story ends. Right In the middle of that place, God in his infinite love fixed his love upon you and me and the sending of his son, Jesus Christ, to come and do for us what we could not do for ourselves. So you may not be holy, but Christ came and he lived a sinless life that you and I could not live. He willingly went to the cross, he bled and he suffered and died because our sin brought the death penalty of sin upon our head and so he took it for us. Church, like that's what, that's what Christ came to do. I praise God that's not where our story ends. Death is required for life to begin. The reality of the gospel is that when Christ bled and he suffered and died, three days later, he walked out of that tomb alive. And because he did, Paul can say things like, there's now no condemnation for those who are found in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ has now set you free from the law of sin and death. In other words, church, like if you are found in Christ, then, then sin no longer condemns you and shame can be no more. Like Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 6, this passage we come back to over and over again. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? This is pretty bad news initially. Don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, or drunkards, or revelers. Swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But here it is. Such were some of you. 
but you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In other words, church, in Christ, your sin is not the end. Like in Christ, like his death bought you life. You were defined by these things. Now that you're in Christ, his blood has completely washed you clean. He has sanctified you and set you apart and called you holy. He has justified you, declared that you are righteous, not because you are, but because Christ is. And his life, death, and resurrection is a substitute for you. Therefore, it is a credit to you. And that's what's true of you. So instead of running from the Lord Jesus Christ and hiding from shame all of our days, Paul's going to say in Ephesians 4.22, you can actually come boldly to the throne room of God. You can actually lay aside the old self. You can be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on this brand new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and the holiness of truth. In other words, it's kind of like changing your clothes, right? You come home from a long day and your clothes are sweaty and they're dirty and they're old and ratty and... You take a shower and you put on a brand new set of clothes. That's exactly what he's saying right here in Christ. Church, dying to yourself is not the end. It's really only the beginning. So when I'm single and I want to pursue the lust of my heart over and over and over again, or, or I'm married and I want to do the exact same things, or, or I'm prideful or materialistic or selfish or dishonest at work or self-righteous, and I open up God's word and I discover that these things are actually sinful before a holy God, it's doesn't have to be crushing because in Jesus Christ, there's absolutely no more condemnation and a brand new self is waiting to be put on. Church, praise God that we don't have to be the same today as we were yesterday. Praise God that, that year 16 of our marriage is not the exact same as year one. I was looking back this past week and just expressing a lot of gratitude to the Lord for the work that he's done in us. And personally, as I'm asking this question before the Lord, what have I died of and what do I need to keep dying of today? And I was just reminded of, the, of what he's even done in our, in our relationship. Like I remember at the very beginning, uh, somewhere around year two of our marriage and stuff, that God just slapped me in the face and he just gave me this conviction that you have no idea how to love a woman well. Like it was difficult and it was tough and I was just missing all these different kinds of things, and I had this overwhelming conviction of just my own selfishness and, and, and the way I was just so self-centered in a lot of different things, and I had this overwhelming conviction that I had no idea how to love a woman well, and I ended up going to the same marriage conference, I think four or five years in, the, in a row, and I remember coming back and just being like, okay, Lord, here I am again. Pretty much the same things going on, and there's a little bit of progress, there's a little bit of victory here and there, but I kept coming back and saying, God, just do this work inside of me. I'm just dying to, I've, I've got to be aware of my selfishness. I've got to be aware of this, and I've got to lay them down. God, would you come and do this work inside of me? Would you breathe life into our relationship? Would you breathe life into me and do these different things? Praise God that he is not a God who keeps us the exact same over 16 years of marriage. Praise God that, that addictions and self-destructive sin patterns and pride and greed and selfishness and lust and anger, they can be things of the past. It's exactly why Paul gets so excited and he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm in on following Jesus. And he says, like, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And this life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Church, that is the mindset of the one, of the 1%. It's a strong conviction that when I actually die to myself, lay down my rights, all the things that, that are naturally true to who I am, then... I can actually truly live in Christ. I love the way J.D. Greer talks about this. He says that at some point in time, everyone needs to have a Copernican revolution is what he calls it. You guys remember Copernicus back in the day? 
before Copernicus came around, like the entire world literally believed that everything revolved around the earth. That all the planets going on, everything revolved around the earth. Copernicus comes around, he's doing a little bit of research, maybe he's looking at a telescope, and he's got to go, I think we've got this whole thing backwards. It's not that everybody revolves around us, it's that everybody, uh, all the planets and stars, they revolve around the sun. And it changed everything. It changed the way that people viewed the life and themselves and all kinds of things. And what he's saying here is that there's got to be a point in time where we're able to see that life only works when he's at the center of it all. It's pretty intense messaging, isn't it? That I should die to myself, take up my cross, and follow Jesus. A little while ago, I was talking with a guy, and he uh, found out I was a preacher. And his question for me was like, he goes, so you're a preacher, huh? So like, what kind of a preacher are you? Like one of those fiery ones that it's like real extreme and intense. And like you read the Bible and like you think that you've got to follow every bit of it or something like that. I was like, well, yeah, kind of. Um. It's like church, how, how, else, how else do you follow him? Like, what, uh, how else is there to follow him? You're either following him or you're not. How else are we supposed to follow him when I was lost and dead in my sins? Like, the way that he came and restored that broken relationship was by sending his one and only son and by taking on flesh. And by taking care of the qualifications that I could not do for myself. Like, he lived the perfect life I could never, ever, ever live. He willingly went to the cross. He suffered and he bled, and he died, and he conquered sin and death, and he offered this free gift of eternal life to any and all who would simply come to him in faith. He offers you a gift. Like, how else is there to live? I'm going to end it with this. A little while ago, um, I think I've been saying it a lot. Um, I had a chance, one of my favorite trips to go overseas was to go visit some different parts of North Africa and southern India and do some traveling out there before, and a little while ago, I had a chance to go out there and um, visit with a bunch of young prospective ministers and missionaries and evangelists that were living in southern India at the time. We went out there to this village and got to go meet a bunch of them and got a chance to talk to one of these guys named Vashal and hear his testimony. Um, at the same time, the missionary that actually got to be a part of that testimony and lead him to the Lord, he was also there too. Um, and visiting with them, I heard one of the greatest stories I think uh, I've probably heard. And Vashal's story goes like this. He was raised in a very radical uh, Hindu community that was uh, only about 250 families large. And so it was a remote part of India. They're living in the trees, no running water, electricity, no modern things of that nature. Very radical Hindu. And when I say that, that means that um, I, they were very violent in their opposition of Christians and people of other faiths too. And so that's the kind of community they grew up in. And Vashal talks about it. He says when he was, a, when he was a, probably the junior high year something like that, he started to have these dreams where Jesus would come and make himself known in his dream, as you've heard about a number of different times, people overseas, and it happens quite a bit, actually. And so he goes, as a young kid, I'm having these different dreams, and I've got no idea what to do with them. He goes, I, I, I've never heard about Jesus. I didn't know anything about him, but all I knew is that Jesus was coming to me in these dreams. And a couple of years later, he didn't know what to do with them. And so one day, he's in the community, and, and he says, I see this missionary. And I was like, well, how did you see a missionary? And he goes, he goes well, he was like the only white person in the town, of course. And so... Um, he goes, I, I figured he was probably a missionary and that he could help me uh, understand a little bit of what I was seeing. So he goes and he seeks out this missionary that was there. And sure enough, he was exactly that. He was a missionary. And, um, and they sit down and he goes, hey, can you help me understand what's going on in these dreams? And he's like, gladly. So the missionary pulls out 
the Jesus film. I don't know if you've seen this Jesus film and stuff, but he brings out this Jesus film and puts it up on the screen, and they watch it. And Vishal tells the story, and he goes, Aaron, by the time when I saw Jesus walk out of that tomb alive, he's like, I just wept. He goes, it was over. It was done with me. He's like, I just wept. And this missionary says, he goes, at the end of that time, he goes, I asked him, and I said, hey, I was like, what's going on? Do you want to give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ? And Vishal's like, absolutely, I'm in. So the two of them sit down, and they start to pray together, and and they start praying, and, and the missionary starts leading him in this prayer. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the prayer, the missionary feels prompted. He's like, i got to stop this thing. And so he stops praying. And he goes, hey, Vishal, like, do you know what you're signing up for and saying that you're going to give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ? He goes, when you, when you do this, your family, do you know what's going to happen when you go back to your village? Like, they stone people like you. You're going to be kicked out of your village. You're not going to have a home. Everyone's going to disown you. You're literally going to have no more life yet. Are you sure that you want to sign up and you want to give your life to the Lord Jesus? And Vishal looked at him. He goes, okay. He goes, tell me again. He goes, Jesus Christ really is the son of God, right? And he goes, yeah. He really loved me? Yeah. He really came from heaven and he lived for me and he died for me. Yeah. He really walked out of that tomb alive and I can really have life with him for all of eternity when I give my life to him. And he goes, yeah. He goes, I'm with him. I'm with him. And it's exactly what took place with Vishal. He goes back to his town, and he's there, and he's reading him the little bit of scriptures that the missionary gave him. They found him. They pulled him out. He was able to lead some of his friends to faith. His own family took him in front of the tribe, and everybody that's there, they're stoning him. They're beating him up. They're persecuting him, making him recant their faith. Three-quarters of the people that he led to faith at that point in time recanted of their faith. Vishal stood strong. And his own mom and dad actually kicked him out of his home homeless as a teenager, wandering the streets. And that's how he winds up at this ministry that I happen to be at and hear his story where he was learning to, he came to this ministry to go learn how, the word of God so that he can go and, and preach the gospel. You know what he's doing today? He graduated from that place. He's traveling throughout Southeast Asia in some of the most dangerous um, and horrific and dark places in the world preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Caught up with him a little over a year ago and uh, we were keeping up through Facebook a little bit and I asked him how he was doing, and I loved his response. He goes, uh, pray. he goes, pray for me, brother. He goes, pray for me. The ministry is good. People are coming to know Jesus. Praise God. I was attacked by a mob last week, but I'm doing much better now. So please keep praying. There's a lot of work still to be done. Church, that's the mindset of the 1%, isn't it? It's the mindset of the 1%. And somehow when I die to myself, that's when I'm truly going to come alive. It's not really normal, is it? I think I'd argue that normal's not really working well for us right now. Abnormal may be the medicine of the day. I'm going to invite you to bow with me.